Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our special meditation this morning is our first lesson, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 8, which is printed for you in your bulletin and already read. Dear fellow heirs and children of Abraham, there is a reason that the Apostle Paul uses Abraham as an example in his letter to the church at Rome. And it's not just because he was a Jew and many of his readers were also Jews. Nor was it simply because that's what the Holy Spirit told him to write. No, he points to Abraham as our example and even as our father in faith because we see in his life deep truths about God's dealings with us and our dealings with God. And those lessons should be hard to miss. We first meet Abraham, really Abram, because God hasn't changed his name yet, when he is listed as one of the three sons of Terah, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Noah, and the family lived in the city of Ur, which you might remember from high school history as being uh, part of the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia, today we would simply call it Iraq. And after God issues a call, Terah takes his family from Ur, which was the capital of the Sumerian people, a busy, prosperous city, likely as sophisticated a place as there was in the world at that time. And he takes his family to the relatively uninhabited and much more uncivilized region of Haran, which was far to the west in an area which would be in present-day Syria or Lebanon. And they settled and established themselves there. But, but the Lord did not intend that to be home for Abram. Instead, after Terah died, God issued a second call. Get out of your country and away from your relatives and from your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. And Abram went. He took his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot, and their possessions and livestock and servants and, and traveled south into lands that were unknown to them, and they came to Canaan. And Abram was far from a young man at the time. He was 75 years old. What happened when they got there? Not perhaps what Abram expected. He did not find a land that welcomed him or that was even open for him to, to, to simply claim as his own. The Canaanites lived there, and they didn't live there even as nomads. They had towns and cities and farms and cultures and, and claims of their own. And while he certainly prospered, gaining great wealth in flocks and herds and possessions, he did not gain the thing that he wanted most and that he thought God had promised him a son. Not only for the joy of the fatherhood, but also to be the first step toward becoming a great nation. But still, Abram did not find the Lord unfaithful. That his promise was not fulfilled quickly did not mean that it was never going to be fulfilled. So Abram continued in faith, spending many years living as a stranger in the land that the creator of the world had declared would belong to his family. 
And God continued to bless him in every one of those long years. Until finally, some 25 years after he came to Canaan, and long after Sarai had passed the age of childbearing, finally, the Lord gave him the son promised so long before. Isaac was born to Sarah and Abraham. God had changed their names to to reflect the new reality that Abram was to be the father of many nations. That wasn't the end of things, of course. There were still challenges to Abraham's faith, times when God needed to intervene, and and even the matter of finding a wife for Isaac, a wife who, who knew the Lord rather than one of the pagan women of Canaan. Isaac married Rebekah, who bore him twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and Abraham lived to see his grandsons born and raised. He was 175 when he died. The one constant in his life was God. God's word, God's blessing, God's presence. It was the Lord who called him out of Ur, and the Lord who then again called him out of Haran, and the Lord who brought him to the land of Canaan that would be his. It was the Lord who explained the reason for that move with incredible promises which only he could make and keep. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who dishonors you. All of the families of the earth will be blessed in you. And it was the Lord who was with Abram at every step to guide him, reassure him, protect him from harm and danger, prosper him, and nurture and strengthen his faith in all of those promises. What we do not see in his life is Abraham seeking God out in the first place and saying, okay, here's the deal. You bless me with good things and then I'll serve and worship you. Or Abraham claiming, all right, look at this, look at this. Now I have done all of these great things far beyond what anyone else has done. And so now I expect you, God, to come through for me with children and wealth and, and uh, you know, when I die, a place with you in heaven. That's not what we see. We see the exact opposite. God, throughout this story, makes the first move. God speaks, God promises, God blesses, and Abraham listens and trusts and follows, even and especially when there is no evidence to see and it has to all be taken on faith. Abraham believes God, and so he lets God lead wherever it takes him, however long it takes to get there except when he didn't. There were times when Abraham got it in his head that that he needed to take charge and help things along, and, and you'll never guess how that turned out. Not well. 
The worst case was when Sarah got tired of waiting for a son and suggested, according to the custom of the time, that Abraham take her servant, Hagar, as a kind of secondary wife, so that if Hagar bore a son, it would count as Sarah's son to Abraham. He shouldn't have listened to her, but he did. And when Hagar bore him a son, Ishmael, instead of peace and joy, it brought strife and discord to their household. Ishmael was not the one God had promised. And Abraham soon enough understood that he should have trusted more and waited longer because the Lord never fails to keep his promises. And when he held on to them, those promises, that's when Abraham had the greatest blessing of all. Paul, in our reading from Romans, quotes a verse from later in Genesis, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is exactly what the apostle wanted us to see. The most important thing to gain in life, God's declaration that you are righteous and innocent in his eyes and eligible for heaven, that Abraham received, not on account of his obedience or merit or choice, but because he trusted in the Lord. Trusted in the one who came to him first and promised blessings not only for this life, but for the life to come. Nicodemus, who would have known Genesis well, should have understood all this. But as with his fellow Pharisees, the truth had escaped him. So Jesus had to teach the lesson in another way. He told him that the way, the only way to the kingdom of God, is through something that is impossible for any person to accomplish. To be born again. We can initiate that no more than we could initiate our conception and birth the first time around. Flesh cannot make itself pure and holy when it is stained and sinful. No man, woman, or child can make him or herself worthy of eternal life. What must be done must come from the only one capable of changing our realities. God must act. And we then trust. We believe what he tells us, what he promises us, what he has done for us, and, and we shall not perish then, but shall have eternal life. This is how God saves the world. This is how he blessed all the families of the earth in Abraham, because Abraham's descendant was also his Lord, the son that God gave because he loved the world. This is the only way to heaven. We need God to take the initiative, to come to us, to call us, to claim us, to save us. Because we are all 
sinners. Each and every one of us, through and through, in need of forgiveness and incapable of helping ourselves even a bit. Incapable neither of removing our guilt nor of making ourselves holy enough for heaven. And as Jesus told Nicodemus so famously, in love, that's exactly what God does. And power, pity, without pride, with passion, the Son of God comes to earth as one of us, obeys His Father's will in our place, and then suffers and dies on the cross in our place, and then rises from the dead for our justification, so that all who put their trust in Him have not only forgiveness for their sins, but have also His righteousness as their own. And the guarantee of eternal life with Him in paradise. And so, with such powerful and gracious love on display, we respond as Abraham did to the Lord's mercies. We believe. And this is credited to us as righteousness. And all of God's promises to us and for us are kept in Christ. And then, like Abraham, we respond with thankful obedience. With, with more faith, the kind that trusts that God's will is good and that then steps out and follows where God leads, even and especially when there is no evidence to see. And it has to all be taken as true because he tells us he can be counted on. And then, like Abraham, we also worship. He, he built altars to demonstrate that he believed the Lord's promises about his land and his people. We pray and praise and, and speak and sing whether together as we're doing here now or, or at home in private on our own. And we proclaim the Lord, name of the Lord as Abraham did too. And that was not simply speaking the name, it was confessing his faith and proclaiming law and gospel to all who would hear. He was a witness for Christ while Christ was still just a promise to be kept and we now are witnesses to the world of a Christ who is God's promise completely fulfilled. And that's another thing that God got going and that we follow through on. He spoke His gospel to us first, and now we speak it to others. We are part of the world, and the world needs what we know, and what we know is that what Jesus came for and did, He came for and did because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We want the world. Our neighbors and friends, our spouses and children and grandchildren, our co-workers and classmates, yes, even our enemies, we want them all not just to know this, to believe this gospel too, this good news of a Savior in Jesus Christ, so that they might not perish 
and might have everlasting life. And that's what God wants too. And that's why He not only provided everything necessary for all the world's salvation, that's why He acted first. He didn't wait for us or anyone to do what was impossible. None of us could have come to Him, could have merited eternal life, could have rid Himself of His guilt or cleansed herself of her sins. So God had to do what only He could do. Did for us. Because He loved us. So He did. God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him which meant that through Him would come the Savior of the world, and He did. That's who Jesus was. God fulfilled every promise that He made about this Messiah, this promised Savior. God gave His only begotten Son, sending Him into the world to save the world through Him. He acted first, and He still acts first. We do not and cannot pray Jesus into our hearts or choose Him. We cannot gain God's favor by impressing Him with good works or sincerity. Just as we saw the Lord do with Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall last week, we still see Him do it today. God seeks out the sinner. God convicts. God promises. God speaks good news. God cleanses. God chooses. And God saves. And then we do what Abraham did. We trust Him. We believe Him. And we worship Him. And with Him also, we thank God that He takes the initiative. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.